Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened. Uh, just an opportunity, really, isn't it, to um, revise our understanding of the uh, Bodhidharma <coughs> according to a certain uh, Bhikkhu Bodhidharma. So, uh, <laughs> just trying to uh, put it in the context also of a new year and a time for resolutions, things like that. Uh, an opportunity to look back and um, and to uh, have some way of reflecting upon our lives. Um, I suppose it's good just to remind ourselves of this uh, basic psychology that the Buddha uh, teaches us. Uh, we can start really by by seeing that he gives us a sort of cross section of every moment, and also what happens in process, what happens over a period of time. So that cross-section he called the, the five candors, the five aggregates. And um, the one that's interesting, uh, specifically these days, is cognition, which is the fifth one, as you all know. Cognition is momentary. If you were to really, if we were to really see what was happening now, what we would experience is a sort of stroboscopic uh, universe. It would be arising and passing away at tremendous speed. So these are like uh, little photographs that are caught by uh, consciousness, an act of cognition. And um, it's only because it's happening at this enormous speed that it gives us a sense of flow, a sense of con- continuity. And of course, from a point of view of delusion, uh, it's easy for us to identify with that. So, I am the one. I am the that process of knowing because I always seem to be there, you know. And whenever I'm knowing something, there's always me. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Even if I lose myself in uh, in an absorption, I still come out and say, "Oh, that was me." So uh, there's that po- there's that problem of identity, which we'll come to in terms of the uh, the flow of our psychology. And what it catches, what this moment of cognition always catches, are these four other aggregates in a singular moment. So there's always uh, the body, rupa. Uh, I translate it as the body, but it's not not at a subtle level, it's not the body itself. What we know of the body, what we can experience of the body, is is quite minimal. I mean, what do you know about your big toe nail? See, very little. I mean, you can feel it, you can see the colour of it. But you've never been it, have you? Have you ever been a toenail? See, it's never, it's not something you can absorb into. It's, it's there. And, and of course, we're quite happy to cut it off when it gets a bit too long. But we don't think we're losing a bit of me. At least I don't. I don't go through a burial ceremony whenever I cut <laughs> my toenail off. Or any nail, when I think about it. So uh, when you investigate um, what this body is, 
I think it's quite surprising how little we're aware of what's going on at any given time. You know, whether it's a, an organ such as the liver or the blood flow or the passage of, I think it's red corpuscles, isn't it, out of the um, marrow of the bone, through the bone, into the bloodstream. I haven't a clue what's going on. In fact, I'd, I'd be, I would have been quite happy in, in, in ignorance uh, just reading these silly books. I've opened up this, <laughs> this realization that I haven't, I haven't a clue, generally speaking, what's going on in my body. I know when it goes wrong, of course. I mean, when it's okay, it feels all right. There's a general feeling of wellness. When it goes off, I get very worried. So, when the Buddha talks about the body, yes, he's talking about the way we relate to the body. And we can see that there's, uh, there's three delusive ways of relating. One of them is through a sense of disgust with the body, you know, not being happy with the way it smells and does things. And, um, and, the, and he gives us these exercises of looking at the disgusting nature of the body, see? That's not to make us more disgusted. <laughs> That's to make us uh, overcome disgust. That's to make us see the body as it really is. It's an animal, for heaven's sake. The body, there's no difference between us and those sheep that you see out in the field. They've got everything we've got, just different shape. And it's, <laughs> it's, getting, it's going beyond the sense of uh, disgust, which is all about, really, the way we see ourselves, the way we perceive the world. So if something is smelly, for instance, we think it's bad, see? But it's not, it's just smelly. That's all right. And then there's this business of um, the way we look, which is, of course, a social construct, you know, whether you're beautiful or not. And that can cause us all sorts of misery, cause people terrible misery. You know, I think pimples on the end of your nose can be the cause of deep depression. So it's a case of recognizing also that uh, the body is just the body. It's just, it doesn't have to be uh, beautiful at all to perform its tasks. It's just, it's, just a psych- it's just an organism. <laughs> and the other thing is, of course, when we investigate our relationship with the body, is that we've invested a tremendous amount of our happiness in it. So that if, if we, for instance, uh, start going blind or deaf, it's, it's a horror story for us. Okay? I mean, we might know that from people who are disabled, that eventually makes no difference to our quality of life if we, if we approach the situation uh, with acceptance. But that, that doesn't undermine the fact that getting there is uh, very painful. Even this, um, see I've got this pain in my tooth, and it was right at the back of my mouth, nobody ever know about it. But I'm very worried, see? <laughs> I might have to have it taken out, then I've only got one gnasher on the top. Well, that's terrible, isn't it? I mean, if I lose that, I've had it. I'm going to have to wear one of those plastic things in my mouth. It's terrible. So uh, when, when you look at the body, uh, the Buddha is, is saying all that, but that's, that, that actually is, in a sense, um, the more gross, the more obvious, not so much gross, the more obvious part of our relationship to the body. But when we uh, really investigate what is it we, you know, what are the building blocks upon which we uh, know the body, and you actually go into your meditation. I mean, the obvious one that I normally talk about is pain, isn't it? Because... When you go into pain, there's no pain there at all. What you've got is tightness or pressure, uh, burning, uh, prickling, all sorts of sensations, but there's no pain as such. Because at the, at the, and then you realize that actually all we can know of the body is its sensation, the sensations that are coming from the body. And from that, we 
uh, we build up these concepts, right? emotional concepts too. You know, like pain. Pain is a, is not just a simple uh, uh, medical description. It's actually something you feel. So um, <clears throat> when we when we uh, go into that first heap, that first aggregate of of the body, the, bu- the Buddha is actually pointing to the fact that it's the point where the mind is touching the body. The mind is against the body, right? What it can actually cognize that we have to uh, begin to see that that there's actually uh, only these momentary sensations, and these momentary sensations are only momentary because that's the way cognition behaves. Catches every moment like that, like um, like the old uh, films, like the old film reels, and then from that we create uh, our sanya, which is our perception. So these perceptions are uh, memories. That's our memory perceptions, and at first they're very simple: red, blue, box, and all that sort of stuff. But they eventually build up into uh, concepts. They're, they're, they're ways in which then we start looking at the world through the history that we've, we've had with it. See, the sanya. Um, these sanya, you can see them as um, uh, um, basic uh, perceptions which lie at the back of the slow growth of concepts. But as you get a concept, it becomes a sanya because that's the way you perceive the world. You're perceiving the world through a particular concept. And um, again, in our meditation, we're trying to go beyond that by uh, uh, the process of getting back down to the initial uh, sensations that we have in the body. See? You know, grounding ourselves in the body. See? So feelings, sensations, uh, they don't, they're not made up by the mind. They're actually a direct experience of them. So when you're walking around the, uh, the, the, uh, the meadow there and you can feel your boots sinking into the mud, it's a case of, of, of actually feeling that, the, you know, what the sensation is of sinking into mud, see? And that's, that's not made up. That's not some conceptual idea. That's a direct experience of sinking in the mud. And while I remember, there's all those moles out there. <laughs> and I'm walking around thinking, I shall sink my boot into a molehill with the hope... <laughs> Stop Morris reappearing. We've got a rash in them, haven't we? So those are those uh, sensations. So sanya, perception, you see. And then on top of that, we have a whole... I have a, 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 a sort of second layer of experience that we call feelings, Vedana. And this is what we feel in the body. So these Vedana are, are made up of these basic uh, um, uh, sensations that we have but they're being described as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And as soon as we do that, you see, in any given moment, uh, we're living in a, in, in, a, in a dualistic world in terms of feeling. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or some shade in between. Okay? Even, even neutral sensations, when you really investigate them, will have a shade of being pleasant or unpleasant. So that's the mind. It's, I mean, it's, that's the way... Uh, uh, that's a given, you might say, the Vedana. And remember that these sensations are both physical, coming from the body itself, like pain, like pleasure. But it's also uh, a mental thing. It's also what we call the feeling level of an emotion, mm-hmm. the feeling base. 
And then we have these sankharas. Now, the Buddha, the Buddha has, separate, has, has created these five aggregates really to point to a certain process, these sankharas, you see. Um, because that's where our problems lie. The other stuff is just, is just a given. And the problems lie within these sankharas. So uh, you, get, you get lots of models of a human being from Freudian and so on. Um, but the Buddha's model is really to keep pointing us as to where the suffering arises. Right? Because that's all he's concerned with, isn't it? Just this problem of suffering, human suffering. Now when these five aggregates start moving in time, then uh, we see much more this sort of process. So the five aggregates are always there, but we see that there's some things that are with us, as it were, all the time as a way of looking at the world. And that's, that's our sankharas. So these sankharas, these habits, um, mental, mental habits, which express themselves through our body language, see, um, are all generated by an act of will. And that's really where uh, we come to this point where the Buddha is pointing to what it is that actually creates something. It's a, it's a, it's a very um, uh, mystical thing. Uh, the Buddha doesn't describe will. I, I mean, it's a force. It's a force which, which manifests something in, in the, you know, in, in, into the world. And it's, it's, it arises after an intention. I mean, that moment where an intention becomes a flow of thought or an intention becomes an action of speech or an action of the body uh, is, is a split second. Normally speaking, we don't even notice it. We just, we just do. We just carry on. But that distinction is crucial, you see, because at the point of the arising of an intention, which is only a thought flavoured with desire, hmm, uh, at that point, nothing's actually happened. I mean, that's a, a really crucial understanding because uh, we would then think that every time an intention arises, we've already behaved either wholesomely or unwholesomely. But that's not so. It's, it's the arising of that, of that uh, intention. Now, the intention in the process is called this tanha. That's what he's, he's referring to, that point of intention. If it's something which is um, unwholesome, then uh, we have this special word, tanha, for it. Uh, but if it's something wholesome, uh, then we can use the word chanda, which means, which also has both a, a, an unwholesome or wholesome desire, but at least here we can talk about desires that are wholesome. And the Buddha, the Buddha must have, the Buddha also goes through this process. You know? I mean, you don't get this written up, of course, but I mean, it's not as though he was an automaton. He was, he was aware of what he was doing, and when he got up, when, he, when his body signaled that he was hungry, he made the intention to go out and get some, some arms round. So that wasn't something that happened automatically. He must have seen the intention arise, and he must have thought to himself, right, this is time to get some food. <laughs> and he gets his bowl and his robe, and he does all the things that anybody else, that any other of his monks would do, and his, and his nuns, and now he goes. So, but there's something missing. There's something missing from that process which does not cause him any problems. For us, there's something in there which is causing us problems. So this tanha, now this tanha, uh, once it's, once it's uh, arisen, we have this next thing of this upadana, this grasping. So uh, what happens at that point, you see? What happens at that point? The point is a point of identity. 
Yeah? The wanting becomes I want. And at that, at, that, at that moment of identity where the I comes in, the sense of me, into an action, into, into that flow, is, is the point of suffering. See, there's, the, there's no suffering so long as it stays at tanha. So now, uh, we can know this, for instance, in our practice when we are, um, when we're aware of some desire coming up, which we're not going to fulfill, say, when we're eating. So there's hunger there, which is not a, a pleasant feeling in itself. It's pleasant in the sense that if, if a thirsty person sees, uh, you know, um, a water tap somewhere, then that thirst doesn't become so painful as it was if there was no water around, if you were stuck on the sea or something. Uh, but it's still not a pleasant sensation as such. Hunger is not a pleasant sensation, feeling hungry. So when we sit at uh, the table and we're in contact with that hunger, we can, uh, and we're not reacting, we're not identifying with it, you see, and we're not reacting to it, it is just a sensation. But we can describe it at that point as being unpleasant, but there's no suffering. There's no suffering. Now, if we were to carry on this fast for 60-odd days, it gets very, very, very painful. And then, <laughs> and then the sense of hunger would become something that uh, grasps and we would we would enter into that we would enter into that uh, suffering as an I as a me and that's the point of suffering the point of suffering begins with the upadana you see and of course once we're in that suffering we want to escape from it so the escape is uh, the commitment the empowerment of that desire and what that creates is an action and that's and the buddha in this particular stream of actions calls that bhava, which means becoming. So becoming, becoming moment after moment, driven by, uh, in this case, an unwholesome desire, uh, uh, driven by this force, see, so it's a force, is, is this the will that the Buddha talks about, chaitanya. These are all included in that one moment. So we've got the, the becoming, meaning the I becomes reinvents itself as I want uh, ice cream, I want ice cream, I, it keeps on going, it keeps flipping around itself. Huh? And every time it does that, it empowers it, so it's got this force going into that desire. And as it's doing that, it, 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 it's creating these, the, this habit, this sankara, it's whirling around itself. See? And it's beginning to see that process uh, and to see that the original problem, the original problem, lies in that identity. That's why the Buddha is always pointing to this, to this uh, quality of self. It's the self, you see, the point of identity, which is, we say, the core problem. And this core problem um, is, is, is deep within us because it's buried in this fundamental delusion which runs right underneath all our daily lives. See, it's just there as a given. I am a human being, see? A terrible delusion. So, committing ourselves to the human form, we're obviously committed to finding happiness in the human form. And that's why a lot of this mindfulness stuff, you see, how it, how it veers off towards finding happiness. See? Not that this mindfulness uh, movement isn't a good thing, and it's not, but it, it, takes, it, it takes away from the core problem. Uh, mindfulness and stress, mindfulness and eating problems, you know? mindfulness and good business. And all that sort of stuff. It's, it's in big business now, you see what I mean? All that mindfulness is about really, uh, you know, making, making the world a more pleasant place. 
but it's a goose chase because eventually it'll corrupt, eventually it won't satisfy because the person keeps looking for happiness in the world. Now, <clears throat> the, Buddha's, the Buddha's actually pointing us to a different source of happiness, which is what he calls Nibbana. So, uh, in our meditation, where do we find this, this where do we begin to uh, experience this Nibbanic um, type of happiness, you see? Because it's not as though we invent it. I remember my old teacher always saying, you know, when you get on the train to London, you don't, you know, London is not being manufactured as you take a journey there. London's already there, and, you're, and you arrive. <laughs> so it's the same with Nibbana. It's not as though we're manufacturing Nibbana. Nibbana's already there. It's staring us in the face. But for some reason, uh, we can't see it. We can't, we can't uh, get a handle on it. See? So uh, I always, uh, usually in the evening, when I'm uh, doing that Mahasi course, I always mention this uh, you know, verse from the Dhammapada. Those who are mindful in the presence of Nibbana. So, I mean, he's actually saying that, in the vicinity of it, you're in the presence of Nibbana. So, there must be something about our meditation, especially the specific Vipassana practice, which is, which is taking us very close to that level of, uh, for want of a better word, consciousness. Hmm? It's, it's definitely a place where there's no suffering. So, when, you, when you're sitting there, you know, in your practice and, and all sorts of things are coming up and, and things begin to uh, subside a bit and, and there is just that one little occasional moment of, of peace and stillness uh, and there is just this inner eye, just this thing that keeps looking see? And, and a sense of me looking, the observer, the observer, see, the observer, the knower. And in that uh, particular state, when you know after you've after you've come out of it, or even as you hold it, just ask yourself, what is the inner state? What's the inscape <clears throat> of the observer? So this lovely word inscape, which was coined by General Manley Hopkins, like you get landscape and, and all that sort of stuff, and seascape, inscape. What is we know the through our meditation, we know the inscape of the body. I mean, we know what we feel. Uh, we can see our images. I mean, that's what the meditation makes us very um, alive to. But when you're just the knower, when you're just the feeler, what's the inscape of the knower? What's the inscape of the feeler? See? So there's something, there's something about that which is, um, which is pointing to a, a level of consciousness. See, You've got to be careful with these words, consciousness. A level of knowing which is somehow radically different from everything else that we experience. And it's different in the sense that inwardly, in that, in that inner space, nothing's arising. Nothing's arising. And if nothing's arising, nothing's passing away. So already when we begin to experience that, we're actually touching upon something which is transcendent. Now, I only, <clears throat> I only uh, begin to talk about this in a way because a lot of the, um, a lot of the stuff that you get these days, uh, with certain types of people in the Dharma, is the accent on the is the accent on the imminent, on what's actually present, um, and the movement away from something which is transcendental, right? Which is which is uh, to quote the words of, of Jesus, actually Jesus Christ, to be in the world but not of it. And this uh, and what it does is it stops you having this. If, if all you're if all you're interested is imminence. 
right now in this present moment. It stops you having a vision of where you're going, of where the future is. Yeah? I mean, one can argue, well, you know, you're on the path and the future will arise, etc., etc. But um, to take away the transcendent is to bring the imminent back into this, into this world as it is. And because we know the world is transient, it's very difficult to see what is imminent as not being transient. So that's just an aside. So, so our, our practice is both to see that there is only this present moment, fine, there is only this present moment, but this present moment belongs only to the world of apparition, right? To the world of the transcendent, there are no moments. It doesn't belong there. Moments are only something that's manufactured, something whereby we uh, are able to measure what is happening now. It's a time thing which is completely constructed. And it's not as though you don't have to um, have these things in the world, but there's something else. And it's just leaving that as a possibility, that's all. See? Remember, we're not into belief as such, but we are definitely into an openness. That there is that possibility of something in us which is completely transcendent of the phenomenal world. It, just, it isn't part of it at all. And that the phenomenal world is within its scope, but it's not part of it. Now, you know, uh, the basic quotations that sort of support that would be, you know, things like, there is, I mean, the Buddha uses a word there which means exists. It doesn't mean like, you know, this is a book. Is there exists, that which is not born, doesn't die, is not conditioned, not created. I mean, you can't get more obvious than that. He talks about an ayatana. Ayatana is a, is a sphere, and he talks about the six ayatana. There's another way in which uh, we look at, he made us look at the, the human uh, experience by way of, of our way of consciousness. So these acts of cognition are limited by their sense base. So the eye cannot hear, and the, and the, and the ear can't smell, and so on and so forth. And all those uh, cognitive cognitions, those acts of cognitions, based on a sense base, is an actual way of experiencing the universe. See? It's a sphere. And it's a sphere which is separate from the other spheres. The mind is very clever in, in getting all these things to happen all together. So you can, be, you can be watching a film and hearing what's being said and uh, chewing your popcorn and it all seems all one fantastic moment. But in terms of Buddhist psychology... These are all really stroboscopic, minute little acts of cognition which come onto a screen which is happening so fast that it gives us the impression of, uh, it, of it all happening together and, it all, and all in a flow. But um, the Buddha's use of the word ayatana is telling us that actually it's not. It's not like that at the base of perception. This is a trick that the mind can produce and a happy one it is for him's sake. And, uh, and another phrase that he comes to is, you know, is, uh, he talks about, um, uh, well, he's questioned. He said, uh, somebody asks him a question, where is it that the four Mahabhutas uh, come to an end, destroy, right? Now, the Mahabhutas, of course, are your, uh, your four great elements, which is how the mind experiences the body, in other words, this world. This, where does this world come to an end? That's another way of saying it. And the Buddha says the question is wrongly put. 
It's where do these four Mahabhutas not find a footing? See, not find a footing. Right? Where do you not find these four Mahabhutas? Not a destruction of them. Right? So nothing, remember, is destroyed in the process of liberation. The Buddha's clear about that too. He says the only thing that's destroyed, annihilated, are greed, hatred and delusion. He says, where is it? He says, there is a consciousness which is not touched by any of the senses, not coloured. Right? The word can be translated as not coloured by any of the senses, right? which includes all the inner senses of emotions and thought and all that. And it is boundaryless. Right? There's no boundary to it. Now, what, what does that tell us? It tells us that there's no phenomena there. I mean, the only reason why we're in this room is because it's bounded by these walls. Yeah? If there was no walls, you'd have an infinite room. So this consciousness doesn't have a boundary, it doesn't have limitations, and in all directions full of light. And just this, he says, is the end of suffering. So again, he's pointing to something in us which, is, which simply doesn't belong to this uh, phenomenal world. So now this brings us to our, uh, uh, to our new year, which is... <laughs> which is to do with uh, making these uh, intentions. So here, uh, every, every year we have this opportunity of, of reflecting upon the life we've just been living and how we would like to progress. And uh, this moment of resolution, you see, so aditana is one of the great perfections, one of these things that take us to the other shore. An aditana, uh, a resolution. Now, uh, a resolution or a vow or a... Uh, a specific undertaking of this sort of nature, whether it's, uh, you know, even, even on, a, on a social level, like uh, um, a marriage vow, um, we tend to think that once you've made the resolution, that's it, you know, like it's done for life, you don't have to do it again. But the whole point is, about resolutions, is that they die out, they die out very quickly. So the resolution, for instance, uh, you know, not to not to not to snack in between meals lasts probably half a day, so <laughs> so it's so it's like you've got to make this special effort of you know so so what a resolution is is a is a point in time when you are directing uh, yourself in life like like you you're turning the ship to the north right you're directing yourself but then it has to be reinforced constantly reinforced not just every day it's just every time it comes to mind. You have, to, you have to remind yourself that you've made this commitment, see? Abandon all biscuits, see? You've made that commitment, see? So when you walk into a supermarket, you, you steer yourself away from the biscuits. So, <laughs> and, it come, and of course, the more this resolution takes on uh, strength, the more the resolution gathers energy, the less the old temptations uh, can hijack you. See, it's only, when, it's only when the resolution drops for a moment in the old resolution, in the old... Uh, habits begin to take over. So uh, this resolution is a point in time where we uh, decide to behave in a certain manner. It might, be, it might be resolving the same thing. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, the, the power of resolution, the power of determination, is right there within the psychology. You see, It's right there within the, uh, the grasping, the upadana. But here, this grasping, which normally is seen as a... Um, uh, is seen as something which is deluded because it's coming from the eye, when it's not coming from that sense of delusion, you see, then at least the sense of self 
he's working towards, he's working towards Nibbana. See? So the Buddha talks about inclining to Nibbana. So uh, when we talk about, you know, no self, right, the point where the point where all identity with this psychophysical organism has stopped, that's the point of liberation, right? But until that point, we have to keep, uh, shall we say, uh, amending the self. See, inclining towards Nibbana. How do you incline towards Nibbana? You see, you incline towards Nibbana by sorting out our ethics. So eventually, what we find is that the path is the path of relationships. Is how do we relate to the world, to things, to objects? How do we how do we close how do we close the fridge door? See, that's important. And then how you relate to individuals, to people, to the earth, ecology, etc., etc. So it's all to do with our relationships and what is our motivation in those relationships. And that's, that's where you'll find resolutions are normally, are normally based. And so um, when, we, when we realize that this inclined towards is about ethics, you see, what we're actually doing is making this sense of self more and more happy. Right? We're not trying to get rid of the self. If you try and get rid of the self, then you're in conflict immediately. What you're trying to do is make ourselves a happier self. Uh, and a happier self comes about through, through our ethical relationships. And then when we're really, really happy, you see, then all the stuff that makes us unhappy doesn't disturb our meditations. These hindrances begin to slough away because we're not feeding them. And it's in those it's, it's when, it, the, the more that we create a happy self, the more we're closer to getting rid of it, see? <laughs> uh, there's one lovely example that, I, that uh, you might, might have heard me say before, but uh, in the Mahasi Center in Rangoon, so the story goes, uh, a woman arrived and said to the uh, teacher that, you know, her life was utterly and profoundly miserable and that she wanted to meditate and get out of this suffering. And as he, as he uh, you know, asked her to explain this, he, uh, he agreed that her life was absolutely awfully miserable. <laughs> but he didn't say, now you've got to do Vipassana, because if she'd have done Vipassana, she'd probably committed suicide, because you know, <laughs> she'd have had to go into this misery at, at that raw, raw meat level. Instead, he gets her to do this meta practice, you see. And through the practice of meta, she actually begins to experience these beautiful ecstatic states and realizes that happiness is possible. Nibbana is something beyond that, but happiness is possible. So, with that basis of uh, confidence, she uh, begins to practice Vipassana, and in no length of time, as the scriptures say, uh, she was able to make a breakthrough. See? So, our, our practice, our actual practice, is, is about making the self happier. And we ask ourselves, well, how, you know, what makes me happy? You know, when do I actually feel happy? Well, uh, this, the, the, um, the study of happiness is now, is now a big thing in psychology, positive psychology of MZ. And uh, I think we can split it up into three types, three types of happinesses. There are those types which are pretty immediate and they pass away, ordinary sensual pleasures, uh, the meeting of a friend in a street and, and, uh, and then going for a quick uh, coffee with them and all those little fleeting moments where we experience little moments of happiness. Huh? And, and then there's that, those happinesses that we, we have which, where we absorb into something that really interests us. So it might, be, it might be a DVD, it might be some hobby, gardening, it might be something where 
in that absorption, we lose a sense of self and we lose a sense of time. So that's always a good sign. And then you come out of that and you say to yourself, well, that was, that was, really, that was really lovely, it's a great time. But of course, as soon as you come out of it, you've lost it. The whole point of that sort of happiness is the absorption and the loss of self. Uh, and so they say that's why people do these dangerous sports because at that point they've just they've got to concentrate so much into the moment that of course you there's no time for that reflection of me you know flying through the air with the greatest of ease. Uh, I think that's uh, and as I understand it that's what Aristotle talked about with his eudominia. But the the deeper happiness that gives that gives life. Uh, you know, its its propulsion, you might say, is a sense of meaning, and and this this has also been you know investigated by positive psychologists that it's only when your life has a name beyond itself that suddenly there is a very deep fundamental meaningfulness which is the base of happiness. See? So so long as we're working just for our little selves, we might produce these little moments, but there'll always be this underlying meaninglessness to our lives. It's a funny thing, but that's the way it is. But as soon as your life is for the purpose of somebody else, uh, for the purpose of some other great aim, for the purpose of some other ideal, suddenly it takes on a deeper meaning and there you get your deep satisfaction. And that's why we find that people um, you know, will undergo a lot of suffering for this. And, and afterwards, they, you know, they, they would say that... Um, you know, it was meaningful. It was, you know, looking back, they wouldn't have done anything else. You know, we talk about people like, um, you know, people who've been imprisoned, you know, Nelson Mandela. But, but these are the people that we know, like Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi and all that. Uh, but there are hundreds of people who undergo torture and all sorts of things for something bigger than themselves. And in that, they get this real deep sense of, um, of meaningfulness. And with it, there is that happiness. So, uh, in, uh, and we see that in the Buddha's own story, you know, when he, at that moment when there's a great doubt, see? So he sat under the tree, and, you know, as it's put mythically, but it's his own mind, of course, he's saying, well, you know, what's all this all about? You know, I've, I've been through all these teachers, I've got all this far, nobody's discovered the end of suffering. You know, like, who the hell am I to try and discover it anyway? And, I, and how can I do it? How can I do it? And there are all these great teachers and people that I've worked with and they've not been able to do it. See, who am I? So you get this sense of, of uh, the great doubt about me, see, about can I do it? And then he touches the earth goddess, you see, and the earth goddess arrives. And he remembers that he's not doing it just for himself because in his past life he's, he's perfected this idea of generosity. So it suddenly comes to his mind that this, you know, that this, this what I'm going through is not just for me, it's for my... It's for my, uh, it's for my family, it's for my wife, my child, for all these, for all these people and all these beautiful people I've met, and all the ugly ones too, and <laughs> and so and so it's it's that which gives him, I think, that little extra power to sit under that tree and, and go through that process, uh, which couldn't have been pleasant uh, until finally he, uh, you know, he cracks it. So uh, this um, uh, this uh, new year. It's just an opportunity for us to, um, you know, go over these things and to see the, see the importance of, of resolution in our lives, the importance of, of really making these resolutions. Now, the downside of it is that whenever you make a resolution and you don't fulfill it, you always get this, this little voice saying, well, you're useless anyway. <laughs> 
you can't, you, you know, you couldn't keep a sausage. So it's a case of, of recognizing that that judgmental self, that self which is always trying to undermine us, has to be seen for what it is. It's just another mental state. As soon as you identify with it, then, then you're stuck in self-hatred. But as soon as you see, well, yes, you know, that, that, you, know you, you see that as judging, judging, you see, and you separate from it, you distance from it, you see, and you see it for what it is, and perhaps you feel it, you feel this sense of lack of self-worth and nobody loves me and all that. And, and you keep that, uh, and, and you see it, and you wait for it to pass away. And then you regenerate your uh, self-worth, you regenerate your, your worthiness and, and, your, and your inner dignity, you might say. Dignity, remember, comes from the Latin, which means worthy, right? Dignus, worthy. So it doesn't matter how many times we stumble and fall and, and, and crack our heads. What's important is that, you know, we get up, dust ourselves off, and start over again, you know. That's why I'm sure you've heard me say Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are my, are my heroes, because, <laughs> because uh, that's what he did every time he slipped on the dance floor. He... He got up, dusted himself off, and started all over again. So, uh, <clears throat> when uh, tomorrow, when we do this uh, contemplation, see, just think about our life. Uh, you know, just take the opportunity to look past, look back, not not simply over the past year, but a whole life, to see certain trends, certain sankharas, certain habits, certain formulations. You see, and see the ones, uh, see the ones that are good. You see. Uh, you know, we tend to have a downer on ourselves, you know, how horrible we are and the dreadful things that can happen to us. But it's also really reinforcing the fact that we have lots of goodnesses in us. And that's why, you know, I began to institute this evening chant on on joy. You know, I began to realize that, you know, we're, we're, you're stuck on compassion, all this suffering of people and love and all that. But, but you've got to generate joy as well. It's, it's one of the four illimitables. And you generate joy by... Uh, being joyful, for heaven's sake. And <laughs> if you remember a point of joy in the day, even if it was something very simple, and you recall that, and, and you rejoice in it, you see, you say, that was wonderful, I, I really enjoyed that, you know. How, how fortunate I am, how lucky I am to have that moment of joy. That in itself is cranking up the amount of joy in us. And when we see other people who are happy and are joyful, and our joy rises on their behalf, rejoicing in their joy, that also increases our uh, potential for, for inner joy. See? So that, that could even be a real positive resolution, or one of them for the day, that from now on I shall develop joyfulness <laughs> and, and abandon all, all misery. See? So remember, all we're working with is habits. All we're working with is these sankharas. These, they're just habits, for God's sake. See? And it's a case of, of when a habit arises that we perceive, we can see it's not doing us any harm. You simply don't indulge it. Not to indulge it doesn't mean you don't feel it. I mean, there's a, a real distinction to be made there. To feel um, uh, a depression, to feel an anxiety, to feel, to feel an anger to feel hatred, or jealousy. All these things have to be felt, have to be recognized, acknowledged, but you don't have to reinforce them by putting the I in there. Yeah? And how does it, remember, how do these things reinforce? It's through, through the mind. It's through, these, it's through this thinking, thinking, thinking. See? So as soon as you see your thought patterns running in a way which is negative, as soon as you catch it and 
see in ordinary daily life, not just here in meditation, and you actually name it for what it is, what's actually driving it, misery or hatred or whatever you see, immediately you've, you've, you've disengaged. You've disengaged. It, it cannot make things worse when it's disengaged. And so long as you remain at the feeling level of an emotional state, of a mental state, it's not going anywhere. I mean, that's a real insight that has to be understood. It cannot, uh, an emo- uh, a mental state, an emotional state, cannot be released except through consciousness. But when it's released as a feeling, it's actually exhausting itself. As soon as it catches into a thought pattern, it's immediately regenerating itself and generating itself more. See? So, seeing that in our meditation, in daily life, our practice is this constant effort to be awake to what the mind is leading us to. And as soon as you see, you're caught up in a dream, a fantasy, you know, to actually name it for what it is. And then, if, if there's time, there's possibility, you stay with it and wait for that feeling to die out. If there's a strong desire for something and you know it's not wholesome, you stay with it, you stay in the body, you see. You stay in the body as a, as a force, you can feel the energy of it. And every time it releases that energy, it's losing its power, it's losing its power. So uh, tomorrow I'll, I'll hand out these little um, uh, sheets and you can might give you a, a template to, to work on, you see. Very good. Enough of that. <laughs> I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you, by your fierce resolutions, struggle uh, always <laughs> towards the end of suffering sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.